In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. I'm Aislinn Green, and this is Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks one tricky topic in travel each week. This week, we have another episode in our series, If These Walls Could Talk, which explores the stories and secrets hotels can reveal about the places we visit. And this time, we are headed to one of the most iconic spots in Hawaii for hotels, Waikiki. Our guide in this episode is Jennifer Flowers. Jen is Afar's senior deputy editor, and she heads up all our hotel content. She puts out things like our annual stay list, and she's just very much steeped in the world of hotels. And she's been that way since, well, birth, I guess. (laughs) We actually call her Afar's Eloise, really, because both of her parents were in the hospitality industry, and she literally grew up in hotels. She also knows Hawaii really well, as you'll hear in a moment. Hi, Jen. How are you? Hi, it's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad to have you. I mean, I'm excited about this story. I think it's a really interesting look at at Waikiki. I'm curious to know what inspired you. Why did you want to report this story? Well, I've been going to Honolulu for as long as I can remember. And Waikiki has always been this kind of phenomenon to me. It's this kind of crazy, shiny strip with Gucci, Chanel, Prada stores lining it. I also went there as a kid. I used to like play in the in the waves there. So it's a place that kind of held two different kinds of meanings to me, like the sort of outsider meeting. And then, of course, my family's from there. So this sort of um, insider local meeting. So I was always just kind of curious to know like what it means to locals today or and what it has meant in the past. And did you spend a lot of time there when you were a kid? How often would you go to Waikiki? So I grew up going there almost every summer to see my relatives. My mom is actually from Hawaii. She's Japanese-American, third generation. And my parents actually both worked in the hospitality industry there and met there. And so we just used to 
kind of grow up, I have these great memories of having picnics on the on the grass near Waikiki, yeah. actually. And I have this like big vision of this enormous bucket of Kentucky fried chicken that we used to eat <laughs> together, my brother, <laughs> my aunties, and my family friends on a lawn. So, so it was always kind of part of the background, but just wanted to dig a little bit deeper and, and figure out kind of like, like, what is Waikiki? Like, is it a yeah. place just for tourists? Or is it a place where there is a true sort of authentic connection to local culture? And I think as listeners are going to hear, like, you really do speak with these people who have these deep connections to Waikiki that maybe you don't always think about as like a traveler or a tourist. Yeah. So I thought a lot about my parents' relationship with Waikiki, how they worked in the industry and also just kind of were not quite part of it. I didn't realize though, as I started digging into things, how deeply the cultural and historical roots went. Waikiki actually has a lot of historical meaning for people in the past and also today. It's a place where a lot of locals say they actually want tourists to stay, which is really interesting. So we'll hear uh, in the podcast from Dylan Ching. He's the restaurateur who runs the Duke's Waikiki restaurant, a very, very famous place in Waikiki. And he actually told me that many locals want people, want tourists to stay in those resort areas in Waikiki rather than in like Airbnbs in their community, which can be very disruptive and lead to skyrocketing rent and kind of impact the the culture of the place. So it's actually a place that has that kind of commercial importance, but again, that kind of deep historical cultural route that that it turns out visitors can tap into, which I thought was very exciting. And, and it's exactly what I discovered when I went there with that uh, mission in mind. Today, we're heading to one of the most famous beaches in the world, Waikiki in Honolulu, Hawaii. Every year, four million tourists visit this two-mile beach on the island of Oahu. My mom was born and raised in Honolulu as a third-generation Japanese-American, and she started her career in hospitality in the city like so many locals do. Honolulu is also where she met my dad, who moved here from Seattle to work at a hotel. I've spent many summers visiting my relatives in Honolulu and playing in the waves on Waikiki Beach, which is, of course, ground zero for tourists. The area is lined with luxury shops and it has some of the most beautiful hotels in the islands. While spending time on the beach is always fun, for as long as I can remember, the whole thing has always felt a little bit like a tourist bubble and, well, a little inauthentic. I was thinking about all of this on a recent trip to Honolulu. I had read that Waikiki had been a sacred place for the native Hawaiians long before the first beach umbrella appeared. In the 19th century, this was where Hawaiian royals, including the famous King Kamehameha, vacationed. It's also where they surfed, which is something that at the time, only royalty was allowed to do. Waikiki was also known as a place of healing. There are freshwater springs that flow into the ocean here, which according to local tradition can cure illness and ease pain. It got me wondering, what happened to that legacy once hotels started arriving on the scene? Do those deep Hawaiian roots still exist in Waikiki? And if so, can Waikiki's hotels truly connect visitors to these roots? Fortunately for me, a few people in some of Waikiki's most famous hotels were willing to meet and do what locals do, talk story. My first stop is the famous Royal Hawaiian, which opened in 1927. If you've been to Waikiki, you might recognize it. It's that big rose-colored hotel constructed in a Spanish Morris style with these grand arched entryways. No surprise that its nickname is the Pink Palace of the Pacific. The hotel is surrounded by 15 acres of sand and surf. 
It's so peaceful, in fact, that the Navy used it as a recuperation center during World War II. Now, it's home to one of the most famous luau's in Waikiki. I'll admit that I've never been to a luau. It's just not something my family ever thought about doing, especially in Waikiki. So I have a big learning curve ahead of me. I need someone to explain that this isn't just a tourist trap. Luckily, I found the perfect person. What was so beautiful about this place was the abundance of water that came down from the three valleys above. So whenever you have an area that is near to water, that is where the villages thrived. That's Misty Thompson-Tufono, Executive Vice President of Tihati Productions, which runs the Aha Aina Luau at the Royal Hawaiian. Misty tells me that Waikiki wasn't just a 19th century vacation spot for royals. Many Hawaiians relied on Waikiki for sustenance, too. These grounds, at one time, were full of lo'ikalo, that's taro patches, that would feed literally tens of thousands in this Waikiki area. And then the shoreline that we're looking at was laced with lokoi'a, which is fish ponds. So it was natural resources that the Hawaiians had managed so incredibly well that fed thousands in this area. That's what makes Waikiki so special. It's a very bountiful place. We're sitting by the Royal Hawaiian's historic monarch room near the outdoor area where Tehati's performance is about to start. Misty's company, Tehati Productions, is the largest, longest-running entertainment company in the state. It started more than 50 years ago. Tehati focuses on Hawaiian and Polynesian entertainment in the form of luau's and other cultural shows. The founders are Misty's parents, her Samoa-born father, Jack Tahati, and her mother, Charlene Thompson, a celebrated hula dancer. Now, Tahati is run by Misty and her brother, Afatia Thompson, who is president. The company acts as an ambassador for Hawaiian culture outside of the islands, too. Tahati has performed for three U.S. presidents, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. The latter invited them to perform at the White House. Today, Tahati remains a local business, employing more than 600 area dancers, singers, MCs, musicians, technicians, and more. We're here because Hawaiian artists elevated the world's view of what Hawaiian artistry looks like. And so we take that real seriously. We carry that kuleana or responsibility to do the same, our very, very best, so that visitors who leave here will say, it wasn't just a tiki-taki luau, it was really talented people that were telling really important stories in the funnest way possible. (laughs) That's not an easy thing to do. Misty says that while the purpose of a luau in a tourist setting is to entertain, it's also an opportunity to teach visitors about Hawaiian culture with as much authenticity and integrity as they possibly can. Tens of thousands of visitors who may not know and may not care about our culture and history, but by the time they leave our luau, They care a little bit, and they wonder a little bit, and maybe they look it up a little bit. Misty says that the values she grew up with, cultural integrity and hospitality, remain a huge part of the more than 2,000 shows they host each year. Through each luau, they can also connect with Waikiki's roots. As Misty shares this history, we hear a beautiful and haunting sound that she says indicates the beginning of a show. That's the blow of the conch shell. The conch shell in all of Polynesia is always used to direct attention to something. Most times it was because an ali'i was coming, a royal was coming, or this is the sound that tells us that something is about to begin. (laughs) 
learning so much from Misty. I'm actually excited to see my first Waikiki Luau. The skies above me are still blue as the hula dancers take to the stage. The backdrop? The blue waters and the white sand beaches of Waikiki. The show is three hours long, and it reveals different eras of Waikiki. I feel breezes from the ocean as I watch a fun segment about the Beach Boys, the local watermen who appeared on the scene at the turn of the 20th century. They introduce tourists to their surfing lifestyle in exchange for tips. And then, as the sun sets and the skies grow inky, the hula skirts get brighter and the dancing even more dramatic. A display of fire knife dancing lights up the sky, and I'm dazzled. But the show isn't just about dazzling visitors. As the fire dancers throw their flaming blades in the air, the MC explains that it's called Siva Afi, and it's a Samoan art. This balance between entertainment and cultural accuracy is exactly what Tehati aims for with every performance. We celebrate our Polynesian cultures, but what I really want people to know is as we celebrate those things, recognize there's a difference, that that is not Hawaiian, that that is an influence from another South Pacific culture that definitely has ties to Hawaii, but is not Hawaiian. For example, people often see Samoan fire knife dancing and Tahitian drumming and think those things are Hawaiian. So Missy takes care to include those elements in her performances in a high quality way and makes their origins clear in their production. Another segment of the show covers the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom and the imprisonment of Queen Liliokalani, the last reigning monarch queen in the late 19th century. An actress glides across the stage in the role of Queen Liliokalani. She wears a beautiful red and white dress accented in gold. As I watch, the MC explains that she was dethroned and imprisoned in 1893. The queen became known for enduring one of the greatest injustices to Hawaiian people with dignity, pride, and aloha. Now, that's so morbid. <laughs> that's like, what? You're going to tell that on a luau? But we did from the angle of the instructions of our own queen, who said, if we are going to forged to the future knowing that the foreign influences have come and have you know taken over then we're going to do that with aloha because that's our anchor that's our cultural value misty tells me about the famous song that queen liliokalani wrote aloha oi a beautiful melody that has made its way into pop culture Many people think it's a farewell song, but it actually isn't. The story goes that the queen saw a couple embracing, and it inspired her to create a love song that embodied the concept of aloha, which translates into love, peace, mutual respect, and compassion. For many Hawaiians, the meaning of aloha oi has since evolved into this idea that the spirit of aloha can survive, even during times of turmoil, the kind that the Hawaiian people were facing when she wrote the song. If you're looking for a taste of something new, then I am excited to tell you about Foods That Matter, a new podcast that takes foodies to different corners of the world, unlocking the secrets of the globe's most extraordinary cuisines. Join host and food archaeologist John Robert Sutton, also known as the Indiana Jones of food, on a culinary thrill across the world, where you'll gain deep insights into food culture a better understanding of food origins, and learn how to discover these culinary treasures all on your own. Follow Foods That Matter wherever you listen to podcasts. 
My next stop is the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort, home to the famed Duke's Waikiki Restaurant. This is a go-to brunch spot whenever my local relatives need to impress out-of-towners with an upscale vibe and Waikiki Beach views, although my Auntie Elaine always complains about the parking here. It's got a great setting on the beach, and it's actually got really good Portuguese sausage, a local specialty, on the brunch menu. There's a reason why kings and queens vacationed here. The weather, the ocean, the vibe, you know, the, the water, everything is so special. So for me, I was just fortunate that I ended up here and uh, got to just it be part of my DNA, being in Waikiki. That's Dylan Ching. He was born in Oahu, raised in Maui, and is now the vice president of operations for TS Restaurants, which includes Duke's Waikiki. So I always feel like Duke's is the place in Waikiki where locals and visitors can kind of be right next to each other at the bar, and it feels comfortable. You're not in a local bar in, you know, Pearl City, where visitors might feel out of place. And you're not in maybe a hotel restaurant where locals might feel like it's not really built for them. The restaurant is named after Duke Kahanamoku, the late surfer who made the sport famous around the world and surfed the very Waikiki waves you're hearing. A native Hawaiian waterman, Kahanamoku won three Olympic gold medals for swimming in 1912 and 1920. Today, there's a nine-foot bronze sculpture on Waikiki that honors Kahanamoku. Dylan is taking me around the restaurant, which doubles as a museum to both the Duke and the sport of surfing. He's my definition of a, of a Hawaiian. I mean, he was very dynamic in so many ways. I mean, surfer, beach boy, swimmer, Olympian, actor. He was a truly an ambassador of Aloha, but also ambassador for Hawaii. Dylan says that Dukes is able to perpetuate the famous surfer's values through connections with the community. As we walk around together, he points out a wall of fame filled with framed photos of locals who help perpetuate Hawaiian cultural traditions. I think what we do in the community really mimics who Duke was. That's what we really try to do is support things that Duke would do. The restaurant sponsors local events like surf contests and donates money to the community center and schools in the area. We feel like, hey, you know, obviously we're a busy place and we make a lot of money, but we can go out into the communities especially around us and really support because it is kind of hard to get to Waikiki for local people. So we just take Dukes out to everybody else. My exploration of surfing history in Waikiki continues with Auntie Luana Maitland. Auntie Luana is the Director of Cultural Experiences at the Outrigger Reef Waikiki Beach Resort, as well as its sister property, Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort, where Dukes Waikiki is located. She's worked at the resort for more than 20 years. We meet in the Outrigger Reef's new A'o Cultural Center, where travelers can learn how to make leis, try hula dancing, and even take Hawaiian language classes. I'm intrigued by the artifacts in this room, some of which come from Honolulu's Bishop Museum that's dedicated to the natural and cultural histories of Hawaii. The Bishop Museum helped curate the displays, which include a ukulele and kala'au, or rhythm sticks, and Hawaiian weapons including a leomano, which is a club with shark teeth. Nearby, a large screen is playing a video from the Polynesian Voyaging Society of an enormous hokulea, a double-hulled canoe, sailing on the ocean. That's the voyaging canoe that circled the world. And as you can see, it's, it's a larger scale, but in this area here is where provisions were left, and they would top it off with a board, and that's where they would sleep. We move to a glass case featuring a wooden model of the hokulea, Auntie Luana explains that it would take sailors months to get from one destination to another in these canoes. 
This kind of a canoe is what Polynesian voyagers used to reach Hawaii as early as 400 CE, relying on only the stars for navigation. As we walk by the displays, Auntie Luana peppers in stories of her own memories growing up immersed in Hawaiian culture. As she shares her connection to all these traditions, it's clear to me that her role here at the Outrigger is a calling and not a job. I was fortunate enough to belong to a hula club at our church, and I was there with Grandpa. My grandfather was the reverend. And they saw that I was interested in it, so I started to learn how to dance, and I, I danced professionally when I was nine years old. Auntie Luana tells me about the new Surfers in Residence program at the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort that aims to capture the modern-day legends of surfing as they pass through Honolulu. The resort invites surf icons to stay at the hotel, and Auntie Luana interviews them in front of some of the hotel's surfing artifacts, live-streaming it on social media and inviting guests to tag along. Surfers and residents have included Clarissa Moore, an Olympic gold medalist, and Luke Shepardson, who won the Eddie Aikau Big Wave Invitational in 2023. As luck would have it, world champion longboard surfer Bonga Perkins is in residence the day I'm there, and I join Auntie Luana as she interviews Bonga. Later, we sit in the hotel lounge, which faces the very waves he grew up surfing. Bonga tells me all about the surfing icons he got to know in Waikiki, Buttons Kalohio Kalani, Larry Bertelman, Dina Miranda. Those were the guys, that, like, the, the professionals that, if you look their name up, they were the forefront of that part of surfing's life, you know, from the probably like the 80s to like the early 90s. There were also uncles or elder surfers who hung out at the beach who taught him how to behave as a surfer. Uncles like Sammy Steamboat, a first-generation beach boy, and Rabbit Kikai, who counted Duke Kahanamoku as one of his early surf instructors. That guy kicked my butt a couple of times. His brother, Uncle Jamo, that guy gave me good scoldings because I was in, in his way. But it's okay because they scolded me, but they gave me the, the reason behind it, not just scold me and paddle the way. And so, you know, I took it and learned from it. And next thing you know, these guys are just like on my team, basically. Like, yeah, good for you. Hey, have a sandwich. Bonga grew up without much, but he spent pretty much every day of his childhood on Waikiki with his dad and surrounded by the elder beach boys who took care of him, sometimes even fed him and made sure he was attending school. Like you're adopted, like 20 dads on this beach, keeping an eye on you, making sure that you're safe as well. You know, if you got hurt or something, they'll be right there, making sure that your well-being was, was, was good. Bongo will be the first to admit that Waikiki has changed a lot since he was a kid running around these shores. There's a lot more tourism and a lot fewer beach boys, which many say is a dying culture. But when Bonga comes back here with his five kids, all he wants to do is get them out into the waves that hold so much meaning to him. He even named one of his kids after a wave he surfed right here. I was basically born in the sand here. You know, so I have a lot of ties <laughs> in all little different areas besides just not just the people, but spiritually. Bonga credits Waikiki with keeping him grounded despite his fame. You go off and do it, but you come right back and you walk by and you say hi to all the uncles and your, your, your friends that you grew up with. And it just brings you right back to why I did this, why I started. As I listen to Bonga's stories about Waikiki, I realize I would never have met him and heard these incredible tales of bygone days if it weren't for the outrigger and Auntie Luana. I see now that Waikiki isn't just a community of outsiders. Yes, there are fancy shops, lots of tourists, and impressive hotels, but some of those hotels are where Waikiki's roots are the strongest. 
They're places where people like Misty, Dylan, Auntie Luana, and Bonga continue the traditions that I was searching for. Hawaiian culture lives on here with the help of a community that nurtures and supports it. Thank you for listening to this episode of If These Walls Could Talk. We will link to all the hotels mentioned in this episode in our show notes. You know, the Royal Hawaiian, the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort, and its sister property, the Outrigger Reef Waikiki Beach Resort. You can follow Jen on social media at Jennifer Lee Flowers. And one thing you should definitely look out for on TikTok is her new series called 60 Second Conservationist. She basically gives herself 60 seconds to tell you about why a particular species matters. It's super cool and fun, and I highly recommend it. See you next week. Ready for more unpacking? Visit afar.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's exploration, I hope you'll come back for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find Unpacked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to rate and review the show. It helps other travelers find it. This season, we also want to hear from you. Is there a travel dilemma, trend, or topic you'd like us to explore? Email us at unpacked@afar.com. This has been Unpacked, a production of Afar Media. The podcast is produced by Aislinn Green and Nikki Galtaland. Music composition by Chris Collin. And remember, the world is complicated. We're here to help you unpack it. Mm-hmm.